The last few weeks in our men's lunch, we've been working through chapter 4. We're going verse by verse through 1 Peter. We moved into the fourth chapter, and we've really been going over the same set of verses. We're working our way through it. We're going to continue on those set of verses today, again, here at the start of chapter 4. I'm going to start off very quickly going back to our verses. And just a quick review, starting off in the first verse, it says this. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The first verse tells us this, heading into the fourth chapter, as Christians, we have the same purpose as Jesus Christ. He came to seek out and to save that which is lost in the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he transfers that to us. We have the mission. We're on the mission that Jesus had. We're to arm ourselves for the same purpose. Think about that for a second. Peter writes this letter to Christians who are suffering, Christians who are being persecuted for taking a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, In that persecution, he says, Arm yourselves, which really means this, brace yourself, ready yourself to be on the same mission as Jesus Christ. Hard times, hard things, yes. Persecution, yes. But as a Christian, arm yourself, brace yourself, ready yourself to be on the same mission as Jesus Christ. Then moving to the second verse. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of our lives, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Verse 2 says we have a new priority. And that priority basically is this. Jesus is Lord. Uh, Jesus is Lord is not just a bumper sticker. Uh, That's our motivation. Jesus is our Lord. And so now we exist according to God's will, not our will. Uh, We're not driven, it says in the verse, by the lusts of men, uh, the things that men, that mankind that we desire, our old desires, But we now live according to the will of God, which means this. As a Christian, we ought to wake up in the morning and we ought to think, what does God want from me this day? What does God God call for me to do this day? How do I serve his mission this day? Now, hey, you may be a plumber. You may be an electrician. You may be a school teacher. You may be a salesman. We have jobs. We have careers. But it's talking about the mission given to us as Christians. You know what? I do not exist for my motivation any longer. I exist for the will of God, the purpose of God, and so I take up his mission. That brings us to the third verse. We looked at it last week. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, the lost people, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That third verse says this, the time has already come and the time has already gone. In fact, it's basically saying it is past time to chase the things that the world chases, to do the thing that the world does. And we talked about that list last week, what each of those things each, each of those things entail, what those things look like. But the third verse is saying this, you know what? The time has already passed. You've had enough time for that. The time has come and gone And now we exist for the mission of Christ. We exist to be on the will and the purpose that God has given us. And so that's what the third verse says. You know what? We're not chasing the things of the world. That that time period is gone. 
And then that brings us to the fourth verse today, and that's where we're going to start in today. Chapter 4, verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Now, now stack that up. You have the same mission as Jesus Christ. You now exist for the will of God. You're not living for yourself. You've had all the time in the world to pursue these things that the world pursues. You now pursue something different. And in all of that, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Now, verse 4 is a true verse. Verse 4 means this. The lost world, lost people cannot believe that you would live differently. The lost world, the lost people around you, they cannot believe that you would not want to do what it is they're doing. They can't understand that. They can't understand how you wouldn't want to chase after these things. They can't understand how you'd have a different priority set. And they really can't understand that you wouldn't want to run with them. Think about the language there. That you want to get in and run with them, chase after those things. They can't understand that. The word there says that they are surprised. The Bible says these lost people are surprised that you have a different mindset. The the word surprised there in the Greek means shocked. They're shocked. They're shocked. They can't understand that you, you have a different mindset and you have a different action now. Let me just tell you this. And and, and I'll just be honest. In fact, you've probably seen it in your life. The world does not mind if you go to church. In fact, in Vernon, Texas, in Texas, the southern part of the United States, people don't care if you go to church. It's a good thing. They'll say, well, you're going to go down and get tires from him. He goes to my church. You're going to buy insurance from them. They go to my church. The world doesn't care if you go to church. The world doesn't care if you talk religious. Well, God bless you. Well, whatever, let's pray about that. Well, my grandmother, she's sick and she's going to the hospital. Well, brother, I'm going to pray for you. The world doesn't care if you talk religious. In fact, the world applauds that. We like religious talk. The world doesn't care if you put your faith in some compartment of your life. Let me tell you what that means. Here's your life and it's made up of 10 different squares. And you're a businessman and you're a father and you're a husband and you're a neighbor, all these different compartments of your life, the world doesn't care if one of those compartments is your faith, doesn't care if one of those compartments is your religion. You know what? The world likes that. Hey, he's a good old boy over here. Hey, he's a hard worker over here. Hey, he's a great neighbor over here. And over here in square nine, he's a religious person. The world doesn't care if you put your faith in a compartment in your life. But let me tell you this. The world cannot stand if your life is radically transformed. The world doesn't care if you're religious. The world doesn't care if you've compartmentalized your faith. The world cannot stand if you're changed from the inside out. The world can't stand if you wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I have a new Lord today and it's not me. I have a new direction today and it's not the sorry direction that we were all going, we were all chasing after. I have a new mission and it's not to make money. It's not to build up a retirement account. It's not to have comfort. It's not to have the things of the world. It's not to party and have a good time. I have a new mission and it's the mission of Jesus Christ. And I am radically changed. The world cannot stand that in a person. Let me tell you something. As a man, the world can't stand that in a man. Radically changed and transformed. Let me tell you something. It's not because we're better than anybody else. 
And that's what people start saying. Well, they think they're better than everybody else. It's not because we have a stronger willpower. Well, boy, man, he's able to quit these things because of a strong willpower. It's because the truth of the gospel is you are a new creation. Paul says, and we talk about it several times, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he forgave you of your sins. Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. You are a new creation. The Bible says the old has passed away, is dead, is gone, and behold, the new has come. Let me tell you something. A big, big deal is this. We go around today as Christians talking about the transformer, Jesus, and yet we show no transformation. Oh, Jesus this, and Jesus that, and our hopes in Jesus. We talk about the transformer, Jesus, but we have no transformation. We talk about the deliverer for sin, Jesus. He delivers us from our sin, but we're content to go back and to enter back into sin. In fact, we want to run with the rest of the world. Listen to verse 4 again. In all of this, a radically changed life, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Now think about this for a second. They're shocked. They're surprised. And what do they do? They malign you. Now the word there for malign means this, to slander. It means to defame. It, it, in its core, it means to speak evil of you. Now not he's goofy, not he's dumb, He's despicable. He's wicked. They speak evil of you. Out of hatred, they begin to revile you. They absolutely hate you. And because they hate you, they seek to tear you down. They seek to speak gossip and to slander you. And out of their hatred, they ultimately seek to destroy you. That's the truth of what the Bible says. If you're a radically transformed life and you have a new mission, a new purpose, and Jesus is your Lord... You would think the world would be glad for that. Man, we need some more guys like that. You think the world, even if they don't want to do that, might respect it. Good for them. They might respect that. The truth is this, they absolutely hate it. The lost world hates it. It convicts them. It gnaws at them. It eats at them. And they hate you. Very interesting. All of the abuse that was heaped on these followers of Christ. Now remember the context here. They've been beaten. They've been put in jail. Some of them have been killed. All of the abuse that's heaped on them, and he talks about the mouth. Think about that. He doesn't say all the beatings you've taken for Christ. He doesn't say all the ones they've killed for Christ, all the ones they've put in jail. In fact, look at the, the whole first Peter. Look at second Peter. Look at the, the, really the entirety of the epistles in the New Testament. How much of the persecution is talking about the mouth, that they're slandered, that they're called evil, that they're destroyed in their reputation. Now, why is that? And I just had to think about that. Why is that? Because it tears down the witness of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me, let me tell you what that looks like. If, if there's a person that takes a stand for Christ and they are resolved in that stand and they're killed, 
You know what? That really honors Christ. And I think they can't deny that person must have believed and been so radically changed they stuck to it. They were resolved. You find somebody and they're beaten and they're put in jail. And as they're in jail, they say, well, look at them in jail. I think that honors Christ. There's a, there's a resolve in that person. They must be different. But you come and you slander them and you tear them down and you ruin their reputation. It ruins their witness for Jesus Christ. And that's why I believe it talks so much about the mouth in the context of persecution. All right, moving to verse five. Verse four, and all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse five, Peter says this to the Christians. You keep on and God will settle the scores. He says this to a persecuted church. You, you push on, you stay with the work, you go to work, and God is going to set things right. Verse that, that sometimes we say, well, that's an Old Testament verse. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's an Old Testament verse. It's also found in the book of Romans. It's also a New Testament verse. It says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now, what that means is this. God will settle the scores. God will even it out. God sees I want to tell you as I think about that for just a second. It helps me to know that our God is just. You know, it wouldn't be very, it wouldn't be very exciting to think he just lets it all slide. It, it helps me to know that our God is just, and it helps me to know that justice is going to prevail. I want to tell you, it's an awesome thing that justice is going to prevail. Justice isn't washed away, it's going to prevail. Let me show you some verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 say this. Listen to this. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels, angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay with the penalty of an eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Listen to another set of verses. Revelation chapter 20, and this is the ultimate, verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead. The living and the dead is what the other verse says. I see the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books are opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. God saw it. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen to me. It does not go unnoticed. God sees. Not only that, it doesn't go unpunished. God's justice holds Look at verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, 
they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Verse 6 is, is a pretty straightforward verse, but if you're not careful, it can be kind of tricky. Understand this. There is no preaching to the dead. That's not what that's talking about. There are some, some that think that, that, that you could preach to the dead or there, there's going to be another chance for the dead to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not a second chance. That's not what that's talking about. This is talking about those who are dead, those because they were persecuted, they, they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they took a stand for Jesus Christ, and now they have died. They've died for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they were judged as a man, and they died in their flesh. But because of God's grace, they are still alive spiritually. That's what verse 6 is saying. They heard the gospel, and they suffered terrible things. But you know what? They are alive because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want to come and I just want to grab the, the first part of the seventh verse. It says this. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Now next week we'll start. It says therefore and it goes into a list of things to do. But it brings that section together and it says the end of all things is near. I believe this is the point to all that we've been reading here in the fourth chapter. Do you believe that? Listen to me. I'm talking to you. Do you believe that the end of all things is near? Listen to what God is saying. God is saying the end of all things is near. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, the end of all things is near. Listen to that. Understand that. God has said the end of all things is near. You look at the world we're living in. You look at the age we're living in. Look at the wickedness of our age. The end of all things is near. Now, what that means is this. Listen to me. Jesus is coming again very soon. And those, did you hear the verses? Those outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, they are going to perish. That's what those verses in 1 Thessalonians said. That's what Revelation says. Those outside of a relationship with Christ, they're going to perish. There is a way to go to heaven. There's a way to go to hell. And on that day, the books are going to be shut. God's grace, his amazing, tremendous grace shown towards sinners is not going to be offered to them anymore. It's going to be replaced with judgment. And outside of Christ, they are going to perish for eternity. On that day, it's going to be too late. Do you see how this is all coming together? On that day, it's going to be too late for them. The end of all things is near. Now put those verses together. You have a mission. It's the same mission of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the end of all things is near. Even if you suffer, and it's going to be a tough time of persecution, arm yourself for the mission. Why? Because the end of all things is near. And so the rest of your time on earth, in the rest of these days, you no longer live for things that do not matter. You no longer live for things that are going to pass away. You've had enough time to chase those things. Why? Because the end of all things is near. You're not going to worry about what people say about you, that they malign you, that they hate you. The Bible says they're going to give an account anyway, but you have to get on the mission of Jesus Christ and you have to take it up with a sense of urgency because the end of all things is near. Let me just tell you something here. I don't understand what would it take for us to get that. What would it take? God just said... The end of all things is near. Listen to me sitting here in a men's lunch. What would it take for you to have a different priority in your life? What would it take for you to have a different focus in your life? 
What would it take for you to set down the garbage and the things of these world and say, Lord, I'm going to live according to God's word and I'm going to be the godly husband that I ought to be and the godly dad that I'm going to be and we're going to search out God's word and we're going to get involved in a local church and we're going to lead people to Jesus Christ because the end of all things is near. What would it take? I I sit here and I ponder that. Why, Why don't we believe that? Why can't we understand that? Does somebody have to to be lit on fire? Do we have to knock something over? The end of all things is near. And on that day, the books are shut. It's too late. Today, it's Thursday. Some of us are 60 today. Some of us are 80. Some of us are 40. Some of us are 20. What if on this day we say, you know what? The end of all things is near. And I serve a risen Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the only hope I've ever had, the only hope I have today. And he came and he died on a Roman cross that I might be forgiven, that I might be saved. And he offered it to all people. The only way they're going to hear is that somebody has enough courage, enough guts to stand up and say, in the end of all things is near. Let us get on that mission. Just the men in this room, we roll out of here. You know what? I've got a mission. I've got a purpose. The end of all days is near. And there's a good news to be proclaimed. God would take it, he would bless it, he would use it. Our homes, our kids, our town, our culture will be radically changed. The end of all things is near. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Glad you're here today. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, I'll lead us in a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come and I'm thankful for you. And I'm thankful for God's grace shown to me. For the forgiveness of sin. That whatever we've done, whatever I've done, that we can be forgiven right now. That the, the record is removed. It's not covered over. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. That you no longer remember it. That we are forgiven. That we become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our record of filth becomes the record of Jesus Christ. And we are robed, we're draped in the righteousness of a king who came and died in our stead. Lord, we praise you for that. I'm thankful that you didn't just leave us here like this, but, but in your word you direct us in the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of us. We are made new. I pray that we would endeavor to walk in the newness that we would do business in the newness and we would talk in the newness. And others would say, behold, the, the, the old has passed away and it's gone and I see, I see a different person. And then I pray that in that, and it may be in gratitude to that and in awareness of that, we'd have enough character. We'd have enough conviction. And most of all, we'd have enough love for you that we would do what these folks in this book did. We would stand when everybody else sat down. We would go one direction when they went a different direction. And the end result would be the same as Peter wished for us, that many folks would be saved through Jesus Christ. Help empower that, Lord. I pray for the men here. Bless them. Lead them. Encourage them. Renew them. Change us. Help us to look like you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.